Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. In this episode, we will discuss Abbas the Great, the Shah of the Safavid Empire. A great military leader, reformer, and diplomat, Abbas took a shrinking, disintegrating Persian Empire and enabled it to grow to its greatest extent. As always, maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 8, Episode 8, Abbas the Great, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Abbas was born in 1571 in Herat, in what is now western Afghanistan, at the time a part of the eastern province of Khorasan, a part of the Safavid Empire of Iran. He was the son of a prince and the grandson of the Safavid ruler, Shah Tamasp. His father was the eldest son of the Shah, but was nearly blind and therefore written out of the line of succession. When Abbas flourished in the late 16th and early 17th century, the Safavids were part of a group that is sometimes known today as the Gunpowder Empires, although this theory drastically plays down other sources of power and legitimacy, but it still sounds cool. They were three large Islamic empires that stretched from Eastern Europe and North Africa all the way to Bengal in Eastern India and Bangladesh, and even Arakan in Western Myanmar. These powerful states, the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals, were often at odds, but created a strong economic region that crossed much of Eurasia, and for much of the time were at least militarily as advanced as anything the West could throw at them. The Mughals were the newest of the bunch, having recently conquered most of the Indian subcontinent under Akbar, who ruled for the second half of the 16th century. Northwest of them was the Khanate of Bukhara, an Uzbek kingdom descended from the Golden Horde Empire, ruled by the great Abdullah Khan II for most of the 1580s and 1590s. In Southeast Asia, the Twangu dynasty of Burma was a significant power. Bayunang, Season 5, Episode 9, ruled into the late 1500s. Ayutthaya was the most powerful kingdom to their east. And to the north, the Ming dynasty of China was beginning a decline that would lead to their fall in the 1640s. Across the Pacific, the Spanish had wrested control of the largest empires in the Americas, and their viceroyalties of Peru and New Spain were by far the largest entities. The French had a few trading posts in Canada, but Quebec wasn't founded until 1608, and English colonization didn't kick off until that decade. Continuing east across the Atlantic, Western Europe consisted of those colonial powers. Elizabeth died in 1603, Henry IV ruled France, and the Dutch Republic came into being in 1588 after ousting the Habsburgs, at least according to everyone but the Habsburgs. That dynasty, meanwhile, ruled Spain under Philip II, who died in 1598 after four decades on the throne, and then his son, Philip III, who ruled for 22 years himself. The Habsburgs also ruled the Holy Roman Empire under Rudolf II, 
who helped usher Europe right into the devastating Thirty Years' War in 1618. In the north, Denmark and Norway were united, although Sweden was the more powerful state and on the rise. The Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was in its golden age in the east, and Ivan the Terrible had consolidated Muscovy and its satellite states into the Tsardom of Russia by the time he died in 1584. The Kingdom of Mali ruled a good chunk of western sub-Saharan Africa. Smaller independent kingdoms such as Congo and Angola ruled in central Africa, while Ethiopia reconquered territory from the Adal Sultanate and resisted Ottoman expansion from the north. And the Ottomans to the north were expanding. Suleiman the Magnificent ruled in the middle of the 16th century, and by the end of it, controlled North Africa, including Egypt, Greece and the Balkans, north up to Buda in Hungary, Anatolia, the Levant, and Mesopotamia, as well as parts of Armenia and Azerbaijan and the Caucasus. Their territory in the east ended, where the Safavid lands started, which shifted often. So, who were the Safavids? Let's start by going back some to how Iran got to the point where the Safavids took charge and became the ruling dynasty. In the 14th century, Timur, popularly known as Tamerlane, conquered lands from Delhi, west through Bactria and Baluchistan, up to Samarkand, Tashkent, and the Aral Sea, across all of Persia, Mesopotamia, into the Caucasus and eastern Anatolia. But when he died in the year 1405, his empire crumbled. In the east, including eastern Iran, his son was able to maintain control, and the Timurid Empire lived on. But everywhere west of Iran devolved into a chaotic battle for control. The initial winners in western Persia were the Turkmen tribes that had joined Tamerlane on his western invasion, the Akkuyunlu and Karakuyunlu, or White Sheep and Black Sheep Confederations. Turkmen, by the way, is a word with several meanings today, but in this context here, it was how most of the Turkic peoples in Central Asia and further west refer to themselves. The Ottoman Turks were a brand of these people as well, and it is a broad categorization in this historical context. Normally, I'd prefer to use the terms like Turk and Turkic people, but in order to prevent confusion with the other characters in this little story, we'll use Turkmen for those Turks in Central Asia, and Ottomans for the Turks who were, you know, Ottomans. Akkayunlu expanded, and by the end of the 1470s, they ruled over eastern Anatolia, Shirvan on the western shores of the Caspian, down through Mesopotamia, and east well into Iran, to Kirman and the Great Salt Desert in the north, down to the Persian Gulf and beyond the Strait of Hormuz. This empire was not to last, and one of their vassals would eventually take over. These vassals were the Safavids, who held an interesting role in the Akkayunlu Confederation. The Safavids were, probably for centuries, a religious order based in Ardabil, not far from the southwestern shores of the Caspian. Ardabil is in the broad region of historical Azerbaijan, and although it is part of Iran today, the majority of its inhabitants are ethnic Azerbaijani. The Safavids were founded at the beginning of the 14th century as a Sufi order, and let's oversimplify that and just call it an order of Islamic mysticism. It was based in Ardabil, and grew in power until the middle of the 15th century. By that point, the head of the Safavid order, 
became something less of a pure religious leader, and, noting the large number of followers he had amassed, realized he had some significant secular power as well. He and his followers began threatening neighboring lands with raids, reaching as far as Trebizond on the Black Sea coast, and he was eventually exiled to Shirvan. When he died, his son pushed for even more this-world success, not waiting until the next. He served as a loyal vassal under the Ak Kayunlu, probably in part because the Kara Kayunlu were the ones who exiled his father. This Safavid leader, Sheikh Haidar, gathered more Turkmen support in his religious military order. Part of his appeal was the descent from Ali, the son-in-law of Muhammad. This, of course, made them descended from Islamic royalty, a close companion of the Prophet himself. Ali was also a focal point of the first civil war in Islam, which split it into two factions, Sunni and Shia. While it's not clear that the Safavid order was initially founded as Shiite, by this time it was clearly that, and this would be part of what it meant to be a Safavid. Haidar spent his childhood in the court of his uncle, the Akkayunlu leader. He eventually went to Ardabil and began to gather an army. These Turkmen became known as the Kizilbash, which means redhead in reference to their red hats, which were made up of 12 panels, a Shiite religious reference. He began leading raids up into Transcaucasia with Akkayunlu approval. However, in 1488, he sacked an allied town in Shirvan. The Shah of Shirvan organized a response with Akkayunlu approval. Haidar was killed in battle in what is today Dagestan in Russia. That might have been the end of the Safavids, and for a while nobody really heard anything from them. Except for his one-year-old son Ishmael. Ishmael's mother was the daughter of the Akkayunlu Sultan and a Pontic Greek princess. Besides descent from Ali on his father's side, through his mom, he was descended from the reigning Sultan, from kings of Georgia, and from the emperors of Trebizond, which meant you could trace him back to Alexios Komnenos, one of the greatest Byzantine emperors. Enough about bloodlines, though. This is the Middle East, not Middle Earth. Ishmael became the Safavid religious leader when his older brother died in 1494. And in 1499, when Ishmael was only 12, he left the safety of semi-exile under the Karkia dynasty, which ruled one of the small and hard-to-control semi-vassal states of the Akkayunlu on the southern shores of the Caspian. Ishmael went to Ardabil to lead the Safavids in person. It was an opportune time, as the powerful empires around him were all facing various crises. He gathered Turkmen around him as he journeyed toward the city, and he entered the city in triumph as the new young Safavid sheikh. Thanks to his father and grandfather, there were probably no illusions of him focusing only on the religious aspects of his role. He was there to bring glory to the Safavids. But the religious part didn't hurt. Guys tend to fight a little harder when it's a holy war. In 1500, at age 13, rather than celebrating his bar mitzvah, he marched his forces into Shirvan and killed the Shirvan Shah, who had killed Haidar. He also took the city of Baku. While subjugating Shirvan, he learned the Akkayunlu were getting ready to teach him a lesson, just like they had done to his dad. Marching southwest, he met the sultan and his men. Despite being significantly outnumbered, he won decisively, and the sultan fled. 
Curiously, or maybe not, because when you're fleeing, the most important part about the direction you head is away from the guys chasing you. But anyway, the sultan fled to a safe spot in eastern Anatolia, and that left the path to Tabriz wide open. Ishmael took that city, which happened to be the Akkayunlu capital. He proclaimed himself Shah of Iran soon after that, and most of the Turkmen simply rallied to his banner. They might have viewed this as almost a dynastic squabble. He was part of the royal family, descended from the sultan's grandfather, and he was the winner, so why not? And the Turkmen continued to rule the empire, although Persians did play a role as well. They were essentially divided up, with the Turkmen owning all the military positions, while native Persian aristocracy had roles in the civil government. This was really a continuation of Timurid and then Akkayunlu policy. So Ishmael took the hordes west and grabbed eastern Anatolia before marching south and east, making vassals of the leaders of the South Caspian, of Khuzestan, Old Elam, of Fars, Old Persia, basically all of Iran. He marched northeast and smashed the Uzbeks of the Khanate of Bukhara at Merv in 1510. He conquered Herat before withdrawing back to his home territory. He became a legendary military leader, never losing a battle, destroying everyone who got in his way. And that included Sunni sites, artifacts, and people. He was brutal to Sunni religious leaders who did not accept his version of Islam as he forcefully moved Iran from a majority Sunni land to a Shiite one. For a long time, Ishmael tried his best not to provoke his powerful Ottoman neighbors. But there were lands in eastern Anatolia that were disputed. And oh, by the way, many of the Turkmen who flocked to his banner were from Ottoman lands. Conflict was inevitable, especially after the formidable and wonderfully titled Selim the Grim took charge of Istanbul in 1512. Shah Ishmael started raiding more and more into Anatolia, while the sultan began persecuting any Turkmen in his empire for fear of their allegiance. In 1514, the sultan marched with a massive army into Iranian Azerbaijan. The Safavids were more mobile, but the Ottomans had more men, and they had artillery. Ishmael suffered his first major defeat, and Selim marched on to occupy Tabriz. But he was overstretched, and he had to return to Istanbul. Ishmael's invincibility was disproved, and while he was able to recover most of his empire immediately after the Ottoman withdrawal, he never got his fighting spirit back. He lived another decade as a withdrawn alcoholic, dead before turning 37. While the end was disappointing, Ishmael had started a dynasty in Iran, and his son, Tamasp, inherited the throne in 1524 at the age of 10. Tamasp's empire began to fragment, as various Kizilbash warlords fought each other for supremacy. But he began to assert his authority, and he was able to pull the empire together by the middle of the 1530s, although he couldn't tamp down the Turkmen vassal's power. Meanwhile, his Ottoman opponent, Suleiman the Magnificent, became his primary antagonist for most of his half-century reign. Suleiman marched his way down through Mesopotamia and took most of the region, and once again, the Ottomans occupied Tabriz. In too vulnerable a location, too far west, Tamasp moved the Safavid capital to Kazvin, not far from today's Iranian capital of Tehran. 
The Ottomans were formidable, but the Safavids were able to fend them off whenever the worst seemed to come. Eventually, a balance was maintained, although it was with the Ottomans holding more of the disputed territory. This probably had significant consequences for the history of Iran. From the Cambridge history of Iran, quote, The surrender of eastern Anatolia gave an impetus to the Iranicization, at least in a geographical sense, of the Safavid Empire. The idea of a Turkmen state with its center at Tabriz and its fulcrum in eastern Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and northwest Persia was thereby abandoned in favor of an empire centered on the Iranian highlands, unquote. The Safavids were becoming a mostly Iranian empire. Tamasp ruled for half a century, and the results were a mixed bag. He kept the empire together, but the Ottomans in the west and the Uzbeks in the east took territory. The vassal Turkmen continued to squabble. When he died in 1576, succession was disputed. The next decade was tumultuous for the Safavids, starting with a civil war between Tamasp's sons. One son, Haidar, probably the favorite but never officially named as a successor, was in the palace when Tamasp died and declared himself sultan. But his Kizilbash loyalists weren't guarding him, and his older brother Ishmael's men were able to grab him and behead him just a day after Tamasp died. Ishmael became the new sultan, Ishmael II, and he had a decent amount of support. He was just about 40 years old and had at one time been a powerful favorite. But after some suspicions about maybe becoming a little too popular, Ishmael was imprisoned for 20 years. Still popular enough to command support, perhaps just because he was the second eldest son, he took the throne. He then set about eliminating all of his rivals. Well, for a year and a half before he died. His half-sister, who had helped secure his place on the throne, is suspected to have poisoned him in response to his reign of terror and his lack of appreciation for her efforts. Next on the docket was the eldest son, who was all set to be murdered by Ishmael before Ishmael himself died. This son, Mohammed, was by this point blind or nearly blind, the main reason he had been passed over for succession earlier. This Claudian rise to power was followed with an almost decade-long reign that could have spelled the end of the Safavids. Muhammad was crowned in 1578, but he appears to have been completely indifferent to actually ruling. Internal squabbles led to intrigues and then murders, and persecution of the Iranian nobility by the Turkmen warlords. The Kizilbashi leaders were further tearing the empire apart. Their infighting was dangerous, as Safavid holdings on the western and eastern frontiers continued to shrink. The Ottomans launched a major campaign which took away significant amount of northwestern territory. Muhammad's eldest son, Hamza, however, stepped in to try to stop the empire from crumbling and crush the Ottomans in battle in 1578, stemming the tide. Khorasan in the northeast essentially declared independence, and Muhammad had to send an army to quell a rebellion in 1581. In 1585, the Ottomans invaded again, this time taking Tabriz. Hamza was sent again, but he was murdered in camp in late 1586. A new crown prince needed to be named, and it would probably make sense for Hamza's next youngest brother, Abbas Mirza, who was 14 at the time, 
to be the next in line, but rather than name a boss who had a strong seat of power out in the east in Khorasan, Muhammad named a younger son who was in court as the heir apparent. This may have been at the insistence of courtiers who thought it would give them more time and power as regents. Abbas, together with the governor of Khorasan, his guardian, conspired to just go ahead and take the throne. They gathered a small contingent of Turkmen and marched west towards the capital. They received no resistance from Abbas's father, Shah Muhammad, or at least the men protecting him who might have done something. Although he probably realized he had no choice, Muhammad renounced his throne and crowned Abbas. By the end of 1587, Abbas was the new Shah, a month or so before his 17th birthday. His empire was weak, fragmented internally by the Kizilbash magnates who saw their lands and titles as permanent and hereditary, and threatened externally by powerful enemies. According to the Cambridge history, quote, the enemies of the Safavids, especially the Ottomans in the west and the Uzbeks in the east, had overrun large areas, totaling well nigh half the territory bequeathed by Shah Tamasp to his successors, and now they were making preparations for fresh attacks on Persia. Unquote. Abbas started out by dealing with the Kizilbash. Actually, we can probably consider a humiliating peace treaty with the Ottomans his first major step, which allowed him to focus on his other problems. After signing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, I mean Constantinople, in 1590, it allowed him to start consolidating his own power. And like the leaders I just referenced, some of that included a little reign of terror. There was unrest among many of the leading emirs who felt their power was being undermined, not by a boss, but by his vakil, a title somewhat akin to vizier or even viceroy, or some other position of power that starts with the letter V. These men attempted to murder the vakil, but he was tipped off and they backed down. When they continued their loud protests, Abbas used this opportunity to have a new set of Turkmen emirs executed. Not long after, he took revenge on those Turkmen who were responsible for the murder of Hamza. It wasn't necessarily easy to quash Kizilbash independence, but starting with those who openly defied his decisions, or killed the crown prince, may have been an attempt to keep the rest from forming any real protest. But protests came anyway in the form of outright rebellion in Fars, Kirman, and Yazid in central Iran. These were thwarted, and it also gave him a whole new list of Turkmen emirs to have executed. He was able to crush their stranglehold on military power, but of course this meant his most powerful warriors were weakened. To deal with this, he created a new style military. He took loyal Kizilbash and spread them across various units, he created royal cavalry commands and gave many of them to Christian converts from the Caucasus. He also expanded a nascent corps of musketeers into a larger group, and this became a real backbone of his army. This group had folks from all over the empire, Turkmen, Persians, Arabs, and more. Rather than turn his attention to the Ottomans, Abbas looked east. Significant territory had been lost there as well, as the Uzbeks and the Khanate of Bukhara had occupied large parts of Khorasan prior to and then during the early parts of his reign. He sent an army out that way in 1591, 
which at his orders avoided any major battles and just reinforced the territory they did hold. He was preoccupied over the next few years, putting down revolts in Gilan on the Caspian and Khuzestan in the southwest. But in 1595, Shah Abbas was finally able to fully focus on Khorasan. He ordered a general muster of troops before marching out with the full might of the Safavid army. He defeated a portion of the Uzbek army at Jajarm before relieving a siege at Esfarian. More uprisings and consolidation of internal territories kept Abbas from truly focusing on the region, leaving it open for significant raiding by the Khanate. Finally, though, in 1598, Abbas pulled together another massive force. That same year, Abdullah Khan II died, and his successor was assassinated, leaving the Uzbeks in turmoil. Abbas retook Nishapur and Mashhad in western Khorasan by that summer. He then got word that the new Khan was moving to reinforce Herat, and the small Safavid force sent to take it would be no match. The Shah feigned a march home on the pretext of an Ottoman invasion of the West before reappearing with his vanguard near Herat, surprising the Uzbeks. There, with his full army, he was able to finally engage the Khanate in a pitched battle after so many years of their effective raiding and melting away. The battle consisted of something like 10,000 men on each side, and it started with the Shah's forces pushing up from the center, but becoming disorganized and leaving their center in disarray. Abbas, a strong military commander, ordered a general advance, which kept the Uzbek wings from moving in and causing further damage in the middle. The Uzbek Khan led a force of a thousand men around the Safavid flank, which was spotted at the last minute and was repulsed before the Khan returned to his main force. However, the Shah's men pursued these forces as they retreated, causing some disarray among the Uzbek leadership. The Safavid advance turned into a rout, and the Khan himself was wounded, although he managed to escape. He died not long after, and it's presumed this was from the wounds he received, although it is possible he was killed in a power struggle. After this resounding victory, one he had been trying to get for a decade, the way to Herat was wide open, and Abbas was able to camp outside of the city and incorporate it into his realm. He also brought the once-thriving metropolis of Merv into Safavid lands. Eventually, they went as far as Balkh, ancient Bactra, but this success was temporary. The Khanate pushed back and defeated the Safavids in battle, forcing them to withdraw. Before the war ended, the Safavids were able to retake Kandahar as well, but by 1603, the conflict had come to a stalemate. By this time, Abbas firmly held Khorasan, regaining the territory once held by Ishmael I at the beginning of the Safavid reign. With his eastern border somewhat secure, Shah Abbas was able to turn his attention back to the west to deal with the humiliation the Ottomans had dealt him at the beginning of his reign. Really, the humiliations the Ottomans had been dealing them on and off for 75 years. His army was further modernized, thanks in part to help from the faraway United Kingdom. The British Empire was essentially non-existent at this point, but the Safavids and Europeans had significant contacts in order to try and defeat their mutual enemy, the mighty Ottomans. Sir Robert Shirley, along with his older brother, came to Persia in 1599 and trained the army in modern warfare. Robert, at Abbas's request, stayed for nearly a decade to help train the Safavid force, and he spent another 20 years after that in diplomatic service for Abbas. 
1603, an Ottoman exclave in Hamadan province was causing issues, and it was an embarrassment to the Safavids that the Turks held it. So they attacked and took it. Realizing that this would lead to war with Istanbul, Abbas decided not to wait, and he struck quickly. It was perfect timing, as the Ottomans were focused on war with the Habsburg empires of Europe and were dealing with internal issues as well. By the end of 1603, Tabriz was retaken from the Ottomans in a surprise attack. He then moved into the southern Caucasus. The Safavids retook Nakhchivan and besieged Yerevan, major cities in Azerbaijan and Armenia, respectively. The Ottomans, seeing Abbas meant business, retreated to Yerevan to make a stand there. A protracted siege ensued and lasted over the winter, and the city was finally captured in the early summer of 1604. The Safavids won several more victories over the Ottomans in eastern Anatolia before the Ottomans sent a large group of reinforcements in 1605. This time, Abbas was definitely outnumbered, and these were massive armies. The Ottomans might have had 100,000 soldiers. Abbas shadowed the Ottomans, but didn't want to engage head-on. This was a trademark Abbas move. He was a shrewd general and wouldn't let the honor of a head-on conflict get in the way of sound military strategy. The Ottoman army was heading towards Tabriz, and Abbas planned, well, according to Iskander Begmanshi, one of Abbas's secretaries in the biography he wrote, translated by Robert Savory, quote, His Majesty did not intend to risk everything on one decisive battle, but planned rather to cause attrition of the enemy's strength by daily limited engagements. He planned to use these tactics until the enemy entered Tabriz, unquote. He was worried that a massive engagement would cause him to lose his recent territorial gains. So he would harass them on their march without a full engagement. And it was already November, so they'd cut off retreat from Tabriz, make it difficult for them to forage, and then attack from the fortress and from outside. If they marched towards Ardabil, then he'd have to engage them on the way. But near the town of Sufayan, outside of Tabriz, the two forces came into contact. One of the Safavid generals found himself on a hilltop, his troop overlooking the main Ottoman force. He moved his forces back, as Abbas had commanded them not to attack the larger force. The Ottomans saw the fleeing Safavids and pursued, and that's when the full battle began. Abbas, hoping to pull some of the large enemy force away, sent a contingent of cavalry around the rear, as more of a feint than anything else, to draw off some of the Ottoman surge. He also reinforced his vanguard, which had taken the brunt of the Ottoman attack, before noticing his feint was somewhat effective and sending more troops there. Finally, he mounted himself up and went with the bulk of his army in after the vanguard in the front. Back to Iskander Beg. Quote, the cleverness of the Shah's tactics now became apparent. The Ottoman commanders, seeing clouds of dust arising and a fierce struggle going on in the direction of their camp, thought the Shah himself was leading an attack on the camp of their commander-in-chief. In their alarm, they decided to order their right wing to the aid of their fellows fighting near the camp, and themselves left the rising ground on which they were drawn up to march slowly in the direction of the camp, unquote. But Abbas was actually attacking them head-on, and their confusion turned to chaos, their chaos into a rout. Abbas defeated a large Ottoman army, and he was essentially able to chase them from his lands. 
he finished reconquering the northwestern territories of Ishmael I and eventually expanded the Safavid Empire to its greatest extent. In 1614, his Christian client kings in Georgia, the king of Kakheti and the king of Kartlia, rose up in revolt against the Shah. Abbas began pulling together an army, and both kings fled to Ottoman territory. Abbas marched through Kakheti, and the chastened king of Kartlia decided to surrender. While the Shah was back in Iran, the king of Kakheti was able to secure an Ottoman response force and rallied his own people. He defeated a Safavid army in 1615, although Abbas himself wasn't present, staying closer to his capital to await the impending Ottoman invasion, which never actually came. In 1616, he returned to the Caucasus with the full might of the Safavid military and defeated the Georgian army. His troops also defeated an Ottoman force elsewhere, while a larger Ottoman army, led by their vizier, tried to take Yerevan by siege. Abbas showed up and harried the Turks, but avoided a direct engagement. With fierce resistance inside the city and constant harassment outside, and the inability to gather enough food because of the latter, the Ottomans picked up and left by the end of 1616. Within the year, he had put down the revolt, negotiated a truce with Istanbul, and solidified the eastern half of Georgia as part of his empire. In 1621, he turned to the small island of Hormuz, just west of the strait of the same name, in the Persian Gulf. The island had, over the centuries, due to its strategic position on major maritime trade routes, become synonymous with wealth, and because of that, it had also become synonymous with vice. For the last hundred years or so, the Portuguese had essentially ruled Hormuz, as it was called, and had also, over time, made attacks on several nearby ports. They conquered the nearby mainland port of Gomrum at one point, although Abbas had taken that city back in 1614. At the behest of his English advisors, Abbas agreed to let a force attack the formidable fortress on the island, and after two months, the Portuguese surrendered. To honor his victory, the Shah decided to rename the city of Gomrum as the Port of Abbas, or Bandar Abbas in Farsi. In 1622, he set aside his long-lasting peace with the Mughals in order to march out and take Kandahar, which they had taken in a period of Safavid decline. He besieged the city and took it after a few weeks. It was lightly defended, and the relief army was small. The Mughals were dealing with internal conflict at the time and couldn't properly defend such a far-off city. The Mughal emperor sent an embassy, and the conflict was ended, with Kandahar now back in Safavid hands. Taking advantage of internal chaos on his other side, which surrounded the death of one Ottoman sultan and the overthrow of another, Abbas also saw that Baghdad was essentially independent and vulnerable. He took advantage of this to march an army down to Mesopotamia in 1623, and he took the once powerful capital city in early 1624. A small Ottoman relief force came down to Mosul, but didn't make it before Baghdad fell, and were dealt with by one of Abbas's generals. He then sent a force that took Mosul as well after a short siege. This also gave Abbas the opportunity to visit many important Muslim shrines, which he spent a significant amount of time doing. He was a religious man, if not a pious one. Rebellion in Georgia flared up again the following year. The Safavids were defeated in battle, and in 1626, Abbas marched back to the region with another army to crush the Georgians once more, 
which he did. While he was away, the Ottomans had sent a large force to retake Baghdad. The Safavid garrison held out, but Abbas arrived to find the Ottomans heavily fortified behind entrenchments full of artillery. Ever the great strategist, Abbas always seemed to favor any solution that didn't involve head-on attacks, especially not with the Ottomans and their artillery. He cut off their supplies while also sending a small force on boats that was able to fight their way to the citadel and reprovision it. After a few weeks without steady supplies, the besiegers began to starve, and the Ottomans were forced to pack up and retreat. Abbas died in January of 1629 in a palace in the city of Ashraf on the southern Caspian shores. His biographer secretary blamed a fever combined with overheating after a hunt. He was nearly 58 years old and had ruled for 42 of those years. Prior to his death, he named his grandson, the son of his own eldest, as his crown prince and heir. Sam Mirza, known as Safi, was crowned immediately and ruled for 13 years. Safi wasn't a particularly great ruler, or even a good one. He spent most of his rule drinking and taking opium, and died in his early 30s, supposedly while in a drinking contest. The decline had begun, although the Safavids lasted a century after Abbas's death. They splintered before reuniting under a new dynasty, which pulled together most of the Safavid territory. When Abbas died, though, Persia was a powerful empire, which he had expanded and solidified. His empire stretched from Tbilisi, Dagestan, Baku, and Yerevan, down to Baghdad and Abbas, not far from the ancient Elamite capital of Susa, all across Persia and Iran, up to Merv in the northeast, down through Kandahar to Balochistan in the southeast. Abbas worked throughout his reign to centralize his state. The army reform, a huge step to take power from the independent magnates, was just one step. He increased the crown lands, whole provinces at a time. He removed clan rulership of certain lands and annexed longtime vassal states. And he worked to improve the empire's administration. This included moving the capital to Isfahan. Originally, the Safavid capital was in Tabriz, but this proved too open to Ottoman attacks. So it was moved to Kazvin by Shah Tamasp. But this never became a major city of the empire, despite being its capital. Isfahan, however, was at the time a major city at an important crossroads in central Iran. It had been the capital of the Seljuk Empire in the 11th and 12th centuries, and it entered a golden age under the Safavids. Abbas returned Persia to the level of a true world power during his reign. He had embassies with and hosted dignitaries from across Eurasia. Tacit alliances with the Mughals, the Russian Tsar, and the Crimean Khanate were just the diplomatic dealings with his immediate neighbors. We already mentioned the British, but in conjunction with Robert Shirley, Abbas also sent embassies to the Holy Roman Empire in Bohemia, to Bavaria, to Spain, Florence, Madrid, London, and to the Pope in Rome. He was a practicing Muslim, made pilgrimages, and retained the religious trappings of being the Safavid leader. He was not, however, against non-Muslim practices, as long as it didn't threaten his rule. In the Caucasus, he didn't attempt to push Islam too hard on his Georgian subjects, who constantly threatened to revolt, although other subjects were not given such leeway. In general, the Sunni population of his empire 
had much more to fear by their religious practice than the Jews or Christians. Abbas was incredibly violent towards the aristocracy at the beginning of his reign. He deposed and blinded his father, perhaps killing him in subsequent years, and he had dozens of Kizilbash magnates executed. He grew up in an environment of conspiracy and distrust and wouldn't let his own leaders near his sons for fear that the next conspiracy would come for him. He had three sons who survived into young adulthood, but none of them would succeed Abbas. His violence towards his own generation would continue to his own children. His oldest son was crowned prince, but rumors of conspiracy strained the relationship. Eventually, Abbas ordered his execution, fearing his popularity. It seems to have been a major regret and plunged the Shah into a prolonged depression, but like, you're not getting much sympathy here. Another son got a little too excited when Abbas became ill in 1621, and Abbas ordered him blinded. This son tried to flee to the Mughal court, but was caught and imprisoned, only to be executed after Abbas's death. The third surviving son was also blinded and thrown into prison, although details as to the reason are limited. Maybe just because Abbas was kind of a paranoid asshole. I don't know. Abbas revived Safavid power and solidified what could have been a strong and long-lasting empire. But it was not to be, thanks in part to his paranoid and murderous behavior towards his own sons. With no royal sons or brothers left to take charge, the young and untrained were all that was left. And his successor copied him in killing off any other potential replacements. Abbas didn't begin this behavior in Safavid Iran, or the large Turkic states in general, I'm looking at you, Istanbul, but he certainly perpetuated it. Abbas took Safavid Iran to the height of its power, and he deserves credit for every bit of that, the rise and the eventual fall, and fall it did after his death, although decline is probably a better term. Ineffectual rulers after Abbas, other than his great-grandson Abbas II, helped drive this decline. By the 18th century, external pressures and internal issues continued to pay a toll on the empire. A rebellion in Afghanistan brought about by forced conversions led to the disintegration of the empire. This rebel force worked its way through Kirman and into Fars province before eventually conquering Isfahan. Eventually, a Safavid vassal by the name of Nadir Shah was able to defeat this dynasty and reform the Safavid empire. Nadir Shah has been called the last great conqueror of Asia, and counted people like Napoleon and Joseph Stalin as his admirers, perhaps because of the piles of skulls he built. His empire didn't last through the 18th century, and the successor states never put together something the size of the Safavid Empire. Abbas was the greatest of all Safavid rulers, turning the fading empire around and taking it to its largest territorial extent. Abbas was a dynamic and brilliant leader, he also ordered murder after murder of his own family and of leaders who may have been disloyal, aspired too much, or just posed any sort of threat. Despite the fear that his closest confidants may have had, Abbas made the Safavid a world power. In addition to his numerous military victories and conquests, he reformed the government, supported the arts and poetry, and built monuments. The Shah Mosque in Isfahan is a shining example of Safavid Persian architecture. Commissioned in 1611, it is covered in vibrant multicolored mosaic tiles and is today a UNESCO World Heritage Site. 
His achievements were monumental, as best summed up by Esan Yarshatar, the director of Iranian studies at Columbia University, in the front of Roger Savory's translation. Quote, Shah Abbas turned this kingdom, held together primarily by the ardent faith of a number of militant tribes, into a cohesive and stable monarchy. He consolidated the state by securing its borders, strengthening its economy, giving it a centralized administration, and forming a regular army responsible not to the tribal heads, but to the king as the head of the state. A skillful diplomat of broad views, Shah Abbas encouraged political and economic relations with the West, and foreign envoys found a ready welcome at his court. As a military commander and strategist, Shah Abbas proved a formidable foe to the Safavid's chief rival, the Ottoman Empire. During his long reign of 41 years, he successfully defended the integrity of Persian borders, drove out the Portuguese from Hormuz in the Persian Gulf, and established the identity of Persia as a national state. Unquote. Next episode, we'll finish up Season 8 and stay right around Abbas's time frame, but go clear across the world to one of the earliest and most successful recorded slave revolts in the history of the Americas. Thanks for listening. <laughs>